We open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. It's been one of those mornings. You know what one of those mornings are like. So I'm anticipating what the Lord is going to do. There's a famous story that you probably have you probably have heard. Uh, it's a it's a a moral or a or a parable, if you will. It's interpreted a lot of different ways, presented a lot of different ways. But it's it's called the elephant and the blind men. You know the story I'm talking about. It's uh, it originated in India and has a number of different. Uh, Variations in, in many cultures. A lot of religions use it. Buddhism uses it. Hinduism. Uh, others. The story is a group of blind men, or it could be men in the dark, just men that can't see. And they, they touch an elephant to learn what, what the elephant is, is like. And each one feels a different part. One grabs hold of its trunk, and the other grabs hold of its tusk, and one grabs a hold of its tail, and, and then they compare, they, they, they all come up with a different conclusion, and they compare notes, and, and they realize they're in complete disagreement. And then a man who can see, who's not blind, comes along and sees the entire elephant at once, and he corrects their individual interpretations, and the men learn that, that they're that they're blind, that they're seeing it incorrectly. And the moral of the story is one's individual experience can be true, but limited. It may not be the totality of, of truth. And as I was thinking about how to introduce this, this, this chapter this morning, my mind went, to that, went to, that, to that story that I heard I have no idea where. Frankly, I didn't know the origin. Of the, of the story. I just remember there's an elephant and guys are blind and they don't, they don't know, uh, they, they draw the wrong conclusions from, from their interpretation. And I think that that is never, never more clear for me than whenever I try to interpret experiences in life apart from, from God or apart from the Word. Um, human beings are very limited we can see, we can perceive, we can draw conclusions, but how we're limited is, 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 is we can't see what is in front of us, we can't always see our motives, we can't see what other people are doing. We're just, we're, we're limited. We're, there's a lot of things about us that, that keep us from drawing the, the correct conclusion. God is at work all around us in ways that we can't always see. And I think that the life of Joseph is a perfect place to be able to, to see that. Some of those ways become clear to us later. You know, you look back and you go, ah, oh, that's what the Lord was doing. Man, I couldn't see it right in the middle, but it's plain as day right now. There are other things that you're still waiting on the Lord to, to make clear. The reality is those things may not be made clear until you get to heaven. And the real question that we have to ask ourselves is the same question that Joseph, I think, had to ask himself. Is, are we okay with that? And, and will we put our faith and trust in God, who is working, who has, does have a purpose, who is orchestrating His providence in life, whether we can see it or whether we, 
We cannot. And that's really the, the crux of faith, right? Joseph is, the, is, the, is one of the main characters in the life of Jacob. And the, the writer of Hebrews tells us the point of Jacob, or the point of Joseph, is that he had faith beyond Egypt. He had faith to see the Exodus 400 years before it happened and say, carry my bones back to the land. Even though he was ill-treated by his brothers, even though he was in a cistern, even though, as you're going to see today, he was betrayed, and then, when we're going to end today, he was thrown in prison. God has promised to make a great nation out of Jacob, to fulfill his promises to Abraham of land, of seed, of blessing, and ultimately bring a Savior... But based upon the circumstances right now, it doesn't look like that plan's going real well. Can you relate with that? None of those things seem to be coming to pass. In fact, as the story unfolds, the opposite seems to be taking place. Joseph is, or Jacob is losing his offspring, at least he thinks. His favored son is perceived dead. Judah has moved away from, from the family. Judah's children have been killed by God. And the, the only grandchildren that, that, that he has, that Jacob has from Judah, is a son that hasn't married and then a product of, of Judah and, and Tamar. Joseph's favorite, favorite son is out of the land. Judah is moving toward Egypt. Nothing but hardship instead of blessing has befallen Jacob. I mean, think about it. Seed, land, blessing... If you're Jacob, do you think you're being blessed? That's not to mention the fact that we know that what's coming later, because we've read the rest of the story, there's a famine in the land that God promised that drives them to Egypt. And in every place, the Bible declares to us that God is in the midst of, of that. And, and maybe that's just like your life. It's not a real pretty picture if you compare the circumstances with, with what God has promised. And so you're, just like Joseph, just like Jacob, put in the same position. Will you put your trust, will you draw your conclusion from your circumstances, or will you put your trust and faith in God? Our destiny as God's people is never governed by our current circumstances, or even our future circumstances, but God's unfailing promise. And I think what God wants from us and, and all those who live by faith in Him is to trust Him and to keep moving in faith regardless of what it looks like. I think you can see it all through the Bible. Joseph's faith beyond Egypt. Israel's faith beyond the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua's faith beyond the size of the people. David's faith beyond Goliath's spear. Jesus' declaration to His disciples to have faith beyond the cross. And our faith beyond the boundary of death. That's a scary thing. But God calls us to faith in His Son. In all of those cases, God called His people to place their trust in Him and believe His words regardless of their circumstances. This would be madness we didn't have a faithful God who is able to bring all of His promises to pass and has never failed once. And Joseph is written to you, this chapter 39 is written to you 
so that if you're in the midst of those circumstances, contrary winds are blowing in your life right now, or they will, or you're looking back and you, you just don't understand why you had to go through that, God is writing this story in the Old Testament to draw your attention to Him and that He will fulfill His promises and that He is faithful and that He never ever fails. And He puts all those other stories in there where everyone other than Caleb and Joshua, all of the Israelites besides David, looked at men, looked at life, and drew a different conclusion. Whether your circumstances look good or not, whether you've been obedient Joseph or sinful, messy Judah, you can put your trust in God who will bring His promises to pass. And, and that's what we're going to see in as God advances the ball in chapter 39. Now, the last time we left Joseph, he had been taken by the, the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, and, and he's just arrived in Egypt. And as you're going to pick up the story today, he's now purchased, and you're going to begin to see his life unfold in, in Egypt. Last Sunday I told you that the chapter 38, if, if the, the last chapter introducing Judah as the second character, second main character in, in, the, in the life of Jacob, if that was one of the most difficult chapters to see the theme, chapter 39 is one of the clearest I mean, it's the easiest to see the theme. I hope you picked it up whenever you were, when you were listening this morning. The Lord was with Joseph over and over and over. As a matter of fact, Moses says that four times in the beginning of this book. I mean, that's the theme. The Lord was with Joseph. And while there's a great illustration of, of fleeing temptation that is there, it's very clear, it's, it's there. Go and do likewise. Do like Joseph in this passage. What Moses is really highlighting to us is a lesson on God being with us no matter the circumstances. It's about purposeful providence. Now, I realize those of you who know a theological definition of providence, that's redundant. Okay, Purposeful providence. <laughs> providence at its core is purposeful. God is not working things, overworking things in, in life just to see what will happen. Okay? He's moving it toward an end. He's bringing about a purpose. And He's doing that through this term that's called providence. God's, we, we throw terms around a lot, God's sovereign and, and God's providential. God's sovereignty is His authority, His right to control, His right to rule. Okay? It's His it's His position. It's His right to do that. God's providence is how God moves and works and cooperates with His creation and sustains it and, and keeps it moving along. Sometimes it's seen. Sometimes it's unseen. Sometimes it's direct. It's miraculous. God intervenes. Pew! Lightning bolt comes from heaven and you see it. It's very plain. And other times, it's just like the wind. It's oblivious. You can't. You can't tell what the Lord is doing. And you can look back and see the, see the effects. You're going to see both of those in, in the life of, of Joseph today. God's unseen hand working and God's direct blessing that is also used. 
how did I end up where I'm at even though I did everything right I knew to do? Why is my child not walking with the Lord whenever I poured Scripture into them? Why did God save their marriage and not my marriage? Why do I have the terminal cancer diagnosis? Someone, the doctors caught it in time and they didn't catch my husband's in time or my father's in time. Those are the kind of questions that are answered by this chapter. You must rest in the fact that God is with you wherever you are. He didn't leave. And He has a purpose, even if it's yet unclear. So, I would say, this is a hermeneutic for life. Purposeful providence is a hermeneutic for life. And we're going to see today, interpreting life through faith in the purposeful providence of God. Interpreting life. You'll draw conclusions about life. What do you use to draw those conclusions? Faith in the purposeful promise of God should be your ruling. Hermeneutic. It's what you should use to interpret. And go ahead and put up all of the the points there. As I've told you before, we're going to show you each of the way that the the passage breaks down, and then we'll draw some implications at the end. The purposeful providence of God, you're going to see with Potiphar. That's verses 1 through 6. You're going to see the purposeful providence of God in purity, purposeful providence in betrayal, and purposeful providence in, in prison. And when you hear the term purposeful providence, what I want you to think is, what does God with Joseph mean? God was with Joseph. What does that mean? How was God with Joseph in Potiphar's purchasing him? How was God with Joseph in his purity? How was God with Joseph in his betrayal? How was God with Joseph in prison? Look, if you would, at chapter 39, verse 1. He sets the whole thing up with this transition. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. We've learned that in chapter 37. And Potiphar, the office of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, a lot of info about Potiphar, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. God was with Joseph purposeful providence came through Potiphar. Potiphar was an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh. His name means he who Ray gives or who God gives. And it says here that he's one of the captain of the bodyguards. It's it's difficult to determine what his title was. It In Hebrew, it has the idea of captain of the executioners, captain of the butchers. That's where they get captain of the executioners. What's important, though, is that he's inside of Pharaoh's inner circle. He's he's like one of his right-hand men. He's he's an important guy in, in Pharaoh's court. And God was with Joseph in this. You can see that God was was with Joseph in... In, in these first few verses about Potiphar in how, in how God causes the, 
this man to to purchase him. I'll show you why that's important in a few moments. I think you can also see how purposeful providence unfolds in with Potiphar in in how God prospered Joseph. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. There's the theme. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight. And he served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put under his authority. So it was from that time that he made him overseer of his whole house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. I mean, there's just this pattern of one thing after the other, and all of them are attributed to to the Lord. God was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, as I said, seen and unseen, in, in observable ways. Here's an observable way. God's providence was unseen whenever Potiphar purchased him. There was nothing... When Joseph was standing there on the slave market, and Potiphar's bidding for him, and he purchases him, there's nothing that said, hey, that's the guy you want to buy him. Smile at that guy. You know what I mean? There's no way that Joseph has any idea who Potiphar is. There's nothing that was unseen. But it was very providential that Potiphar was the one that purchased Joseph. Now you see something that's very clear. It says... In verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, the providence, and he was a successful man. Now you see something observable. Joseph would have been like anybody else, probably thinking, how how could this happen to me? How did I end up here? He doesn't know what his life's going to be like or what it will be going forward, but we know it's significant that Potiphar purchased him because we've read the rest of the story. The observable is that that God caused Joseph to be successful. God was no less with Joseph whenever he was in the cistern, when he was sold into slavery. But God is with Joseph here now, requiring an outward show of success to advance his his plan. Verse 3 says, His master saw. And his master saw. What did he see? He saw the success. He saw the prospering of the Lord. He saw the Lord was with him. Well, how did he see the Lord was with him? Because everything that he put in his hands prospered. It bore fruit. And that's why in this place providence brought success so his master could see and move Joseph to the next phase plan. How do you know that you can attribute that to the Lord? Look at verse 3. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Very clear that it is God's intervention in some way. I don't know how. He didn't zap him from heaven with some success juice or anything else. But Joseph was successful because of God. Very explicit here. And Joseph found favor in his sight. Joseph was successful. His master saw. God caused him to prosper. He found favor in his sight. 
And eventually, Joseph is made the personal servant and overseer of the entire estate. Verse 6 is striking when it says, Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread that he ate. What that means is, it was Joseph ran everything, inside the house, outside of the house, and the only thing that Potiphar even concerned himself about was, what am I, where am I going to go for lunch? That's it. I mean, this is wonderful, okay? This guy controls the company, he runs it, and I don't have to worry about anything other than what I'm eating for lunch or dinner. That's it. Pot roast, Pot roast today. Hallelujah. And I don't have to worry about that because my wife has, praise the Lord. <laughs> There's so much language in these first few verses about what, about what the Lord is, is doing. But I think you can also see the Lord in another unseen way in the previous chapters preparing Joseph for this time. It's clear that it was God who prospered Joseph here, but long before he prospered Joseph, he prepared Joseph for the responsibility. Joseph was instrumental in caring for Jacob's household. It takes pains to tell us that Joseph is 17 and he was a shepherd. He was still a youth while he was with his brothers, it says. He was, he's the one who brought a negative report back concerning his brothers. That would be an easy thing to do. He's basically telling his father, my brothers, your sons, that you put them in control of, 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 the, of the flock, they're not managing it too well. Joseph was trusted with a difficult task, looking for his brothers. He has to go 50 miles. He shows immediate obedience. He shows initiative when he gets to Shechem. They're not there. And the guy says they're on a Dothan. And rather than going back to Dad and say, I couldn't find them, you need to send somebody else, he perseveres on. And you can see the Lord's providence in, in all of that. What is, is God in His providence using now to prepare you for in the future? The fact that God does that is an interpretive tool. It will help you think rightly about your circumstances. You're in a dead-end job. You're home taking care of kids. You don't like the condition of your life right now. How do you know that the Lord's not using that to prepare you for something in the future? Well, He can. I was talking to Woody the other day and we were sharing stories about when he was a Marine learning Mandarin Chinese in interpreter school in the Marine Corps. He never believed or even remotely thought that the reason that he was learning that was so the Lord could make him a missionary later in life. I surely never dreamed that working for Anthem or helping start a business or standing in front of hundreds of doctors to present things would ever be used later in life in ministry. Can God prepare you through circumstances now for something that He has yet to do in the future? Yes. And in Providence in Potiphar, you may see God at work. His hand may be hidden, but it's there. And you have no idea. So you keep looking to Him. By faith. And whether you can see it or it's covered to your eyes, you trust Him because He is at work. Look at the second one. Purposeful providence in purity. Look at 
verse, the end of verse 6. This one would be verse 6 through 10. How was God with Joseph in, in his purity here? It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. There's your brids and transition to the next, the next part of the, of the story. And it came to pass after these things his master's eyes cast, his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. It was the obvious prospering of Joseph's work that drew the attention of his master. But it was his evident good looks that attracts the attention of the seductress here. Joseph is probably about 23 or 24, and it specifically says he has a handsome face and a good build. Okay, He wasn't just a pretty face, he had a body to go with it. His master's wife, verse 7, lifted up her eyes in desire and she propositions Joseph. She speaks three words in, in English, fewer than that in Hebrew. Lie with me. That's all she says. That's all she ever says. Lie with me. That's it. And while she only speaks a few words, Joseph speaks many words in response, doesn't he? Just refuses the advance, advances and gives two reasons. Even though there's a lot covered... The two reasons are found in, in verse 9. He says, There is no one greater in this house than I, nor he that's his master, kept back anything from me, because you're his wife. And here is Joseph's reason. There are two reasons here. How then, on the basis of everything I just said, how then can I do this great wickedness toward my master, that's what's implied, and sin against God? Wickedness? Great evil toward the master and even greater wickedness or greater sin toward God. I mean, we don't have time to to go into the the nitty-gritty detail there, but Joseph basically appeals for the same reasons that Proverbs does, why you should avoid adultery. I mean, he says, Proverbs says, Proverbs 6 says it, it wounds, it... There's loss of respect, there's public disgrace, there's humiliation. And you also have a husband bent on revenge, and that's basically what he says here. There, there will be consequences. I mean, look at what my master has placed in my hands. and I mean, he's trusting me. Joseph doesn't want anything negative to come from Potiphar. There's a greater reason. It's a sin against God. He knows it's a sin. That's a great expression of faith. I mean, think about how early you are in Genesis. The law's not been given. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is a great expression of faith. It's a sin against God. Joseph must have learned something from great-grandpa or Grandpa Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) He must have learned something. It's a great sin against God. And while the consequences of drinking stolen water would be great, his desire for a clear conscience before God is greater. He'll not sin because it's against God. It's not just against Potiphar, it's against God, is what he's saying. It's a powerful illustration of faith in the face of of great temptation. But the question that we have to ask is, how was God with Joseph in this situation? 
The theme is God was with Joseph. How was God with Joseph? Of course, it's a great illustration of fleeing temptation. It's probably one of the parts that we remember most about the story. It's surely important in light of the fact of what we just learned about Judah, right? I mean, Joseph's the opposite of Judah. But from a from a you and I relating to Joseph in this, you can relate to the temptation and otherwise, but there are a lot of things that, you, that don't translate really well. I mean, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Most of you are not. Neither am I. But that's why she looked his way. I mean, Joseph was a guy where she was like, whoa, okay? Joseph started at the bottom of the ladder and was so good at what he did, he climbed to the top and was given total control of his boss's company in a very short period of time. He was divinely prospered to where his master would take note. That was by the hand of the Lord. Most of us will probably advance at a a normal pace in our careers and only a few will be so gifted that will stand out and even fewer will become the CEO of the big company. I don't have any delusions that I'm going to be the next... John MacArthur or whoever in the world and pastor a church of 10,000 people. If that's what the Lord wills, fine. That is what the Lord willed for Joseph. The owner of the company's wife found Joseph so irresistible that she threw herself at him repeatedly, over and over. How many times has that happened to you? <laughs> I thought Vodibachum was quite... Humorous when he said, most men battling with sexual sin don't have to worry about their master's wife finding them so irresistible that she beckons them continually until she can't keep her hands off of them. Of course, for those who do, this is a perfect text. (laughs) For the rest of us, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30 offers much more pertinent instruction. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you than one of your members, that one of your members perish, than your whole body be cast into hell. I don't think Bodhi's saying that that's not in the text or important. He's saying that the author of Genesis is telling us that story for something greater in mind. Certainly should flee immorality. But purposeful providence is at work. And God is actually using, working for good, the sinful seductress to bring Joseph where God wants him to be. And that's unseen. Purposeful providence and betrayal. Verse 11 But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. None of the men were in the house inside that she caught him by his garment. says the same thing. Caught him by his garment means she tried to pull him down. Repeats the demand. Joseph flees. You know the story. She's left with his garment in her hand. I don't have time to go into that, but this is the second time the garment has been mentioned in Joseph's life, coat of many colors, and now this garment is going to be used again in deception. And she makes three accusations. When she knows she's caught, she she goes and finds some other people to corroborate her story. 
And she makes three accusations that are meant to paint Joseph in the worst possible light. Verse 14, she called the men together in the house saying, See, he, that's the master, brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he did, he fled. She appeals to prejudice to enhance her position. He's a Hebrew. He brought this Hebrew in among us. When she's talking to Potiphar, she calls him a Hebrew slave. It wasn't just a Hebrew that you brought in here. It was a Hebrew slave. You know, slave, and I'm the master's wife. That's what she's saying. She cast blame toward her husband. He brought this Hebrew slave in here. You're the one that brought this guy here. Yeah, it was my wife. No, it was the snake. And she suggests hidden motives for Joseph. He came here to make fun of us, to mock us, to... He's not as dutiful as you think. He's here to make sport of us. What a pickle. I mean, how will God be with Joseph in the middle of this? Man, when you see God calls Joseph's hand to prosper, oh, there's the providence of God. It's great. The Lord has brought wonderful things through the hands of Joseph. God's providence is right in the middle of Joseph's life right now when he's being betrayed, accused of attempted murder and rape. And he's not going to get out of it. He's a slave. You don't have trial by jury. The answer for how the Lord is with him is found in verses 19 through 23. Purposeful providence in prison. Look at verse 19. So it was when his master heard these words, she First rehearses her story to the servants for, for witnesses. Then she waits. She sets it up. She leaves the garment beside her, on her hand. She doesn't touch the room because she wants to bring the drama to the hubby. And when he hears it, the master spoke words to his wife. When she says, your servant did this, his anger was aroused. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. A place where the king's prisoners were confined and there is purposeful providence. Think about a slave-to-master relationship. What would you normally think would happen to a slave who has done this to the master's wife? You think they're going to prison in Egypt? <laughs> On the spot, buddy. You're dead. But Potiphar puts him in prison. A lot of pontification was because he didn't believe his wife. Is it why? I don't know. Doesn't say. But it says providence brings Joseph to prison, and it is the prison where Pharaoh's prisoners are held. Another connection to how important Potiphar was. You don't get to. You don't lock up your prisoners in Pharaoh's prison unless there's a direct connection. Purposeful providence in prison. Joseph's reward for faithfulness and purity is betrayal and prison. But that is exactly where Joseph needed to be to fulfill God's plan for Jacob. That was first promised to Abraham. That was first echoed to Eve. That causes the whole world to be blessed through Abraham and why you're sitting here today.
What are the implications of all that? I mean, if I stand back and I look at chapter 39 and I think, okay, the hermeneutic, the way I'm to interpret life is not my circumstances, not my feelings, not what, not even just the providence that I can see, but what is unseen, but I can't see it. So where does that leave me? It leaves me with faith in the purposeful providence of God, seen or unseen. And the first implication that I drew is God is present with His people even in the worst of circumstances. It's easy to say God is present with us in the best of circumstances. It's easy to see the hand of the Lord was with Joseph when he's prospering. It's hard for us to see that God is with us in the worst of circumstances. It's easy to see it in your neighbor's life, right? Wow. I mean, right here it is. I mean, can't you see how the Lord's working in these horrible circumstances in your life? I and mean, that's easy to see. Reverse fields. You be the one in the horrible circumstances. It's very hard. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. And we're going to see next time he was, he was a decade in prison before he ever figured out what exactly was going on. Joseph is experiencing blessing because of the Lord. God is with His people no matter what they face or where they're located. Joseph is outside of the land of promise, but never beyond God's reach. And you may be outside of the land of promise, but you're never beyond God's reach. Whether you have success, betrayal, prison, your circumstances don't dictate the end of the story. Hallelujah. You may be perfectly obedient to God like Joseph and still have a wayward child, still have a failed marriage, the career you never thought or intended to have, but you're never outside of God's work. Will you wait on Him? Will you trust Him? Will you look to Him and interpret things rather than your circumstances? I think that's the takeaway, one of the takeaways from Joseph. Do you think this story about Joseph helped the Israelites when they heard it 200 years in the future, when they're all slaves in Egypt? you think this helped them? better believe it did. The story is supposed to do the same for us these years later. Let me give you the second implication. Obedience doesn't guarantee earthly success. It guarantees success of the Lord. It guarantees a clear conscience. Do right, do right. If the stars fall, do right. But doing right doesn't always bring you success. If you dedicate yourself to your task, work hard, sacrifice, you can get ahead. We live in a land of opportunity. Anyone can get ahead if they just apply themselves. That's an American proverb, and for most of the time it's true. That is a proverb, though. It's a principle, meaning it's not infallible. It's probably more true here than any other place on the planet. But embracing the gospel can change that. Obeying God can actually bring more hardship. Sometimes telling the truth will get you fired or you'll lose a friend. 
sometimes terminating an endorsement for your company because the person promotes sinful behavior will lead to losing profits, not gaining them. Sometimes saying what you believe about marriage will cause you to lose ratings or TV shows. Sometimes playing by the rules will get you a fourth place ribbon, while cheaters will get a gold, a silver, or a bronze, or get their name in the Major League Baseball footnote about the number of home runs. And as a believer, your hope is in God's justice and in His providence, not earthly success. And that's easy to preach and it's easy to affirm, but do you really believe that? Do you live that? That's the faith part. We have faith, a trust and obedience regardless. Or will we have situational ethics, which is really situational faith? You know how many people as a pastor I've run into that have totally changed their position? Not on principles, not on not on matters of convictions that believers can legitimately disagree about, but doctrinal things because their circumstances changed. They once believed one way, but then they were in the position, and now the Lord showed them a new way, a different way. Third, last. I steal this from Bodhi. It can always get worse. And I added, but never hopeless. B.R. Lakin used to say to Jerry Falwell, Son, when it's good, it's never as good as you think it is. But when it's bad, it's never as bad as you think it is either. It can always get worse. Woe is me. It can always get worse. You could have all those circumstances and not have God. God doesn't always have to balance the scales here and now. He does, however, balance the scales. And you don't have to know all of the answers about why. You just need to know the answer about who. Right? God has not left you. He has not changed. He is good and in absolute control regardless of what sinful, flawed, hell-deserving sinners do, even if that is you. Good stuff in the life of Joseph.